The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Good morning, church. Were you wondering if you should actually say thanks be to God after that reading? (laughs) Cutting off hands and feet, hanging bodies. uh, We'll get to that in just a moment, but... Uh, good to see you guys. Some of you I know, some of you I don't know. Welcome to Fathom. My name's Chris. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, gosh, we, we have a lot of really good and fun, I think fun, work to do today. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, let's grab them. Let's open them up to 2 Samuel. We're going to actually start in chapter 3. Uh, we'll get to chapter 4, but 2 Samuel chapter 3 is where we're going to spend time. First service, right in the middle of service, all the power went down. Uh, So we'll hope that that doesn't happen in second service. But if it does, we just keep rolling, okay? Uh, That's what we did last last service, and so we'll see how this one goes. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 3, there are hardback black Bibles under every chair. You could grab one of those and open that up to page 256. If you don't have a Bible of your own uh, or yours has a lot of pictures or something in it, take that, please. Have that as a gift from us. Uh, But 2 Samuel 3, phone or a tablet, you're going to want to see this. Uh, We don't do verses on screens here, so there's a lot of text we've got to get through. As you're turning there, I sometimes read portions of the Bible and ask, what is this even doing in here? You ever do that? You ever just read? I mean, if you're doing like a, maybe a one-year Bible reading plan or something like that, often in like your morning devotions, you're reading things and you're just like, what does this have to do with anything? What is this even doing here? Uh, That's probably how you're going to see today's text. That's probably what you would do if you were to read this text. Um, but I want to propose that if that's, your, if that's your hunch, if you ask that question, it presupposes that the Bible is supposed to be about you. If you read the book, this book, thinking, hey, what am I supposed to get out of this? Then I think you're actually stepping into the text with a problematic view of how and what this book is supposed to do. We think that this is about us. And listen, y'all, it ain't. It's, now now hear me, it's for us, but it is not about us, okay? Uh, This book, the Bible, is made up of 66 books Yes, inspired by God's Holy Spirit, but it was written by real people for real people in real specific contexts. So, 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 so it was inspired by the Spirit and it has been preserved for us. It is for us, but it's not about us. And really, when we come to the Bible, we're actually looking for two specific things. Not so much what is this for me? But really, we are, we, when we come to the text, we should look for and ask these two questions. Who is God and what is he like? When we come to the Bible, we are trying to figure out who God is. And, and, and conversely, that will help us understand ourselves. I think there are things that we can apply out of that. But this book is not about you. It's not about me. It's not about 2024 Southwest Metro Denver. It's about God who he is, and what he's like. That's why you can't pronounce some of the names. That's why you can't pronounce, you don't know some of the places. You know why? Because it was written two, 3,000 years ago into a real people in a real place going through real situations. Uh, So today, 
There will be some application from our text. I would not do that to you. Uh, That would be unkind. But I'm going to have to do some work to get us there. So the first half of our time together this morning, we're going to dig into the text. And then there will be application payoff in the second half of our time. But I'm going to need you to bear with me because this is how we do God's word. This is how we read God's word. We're going to let the text stand. We're going to let the text stand as it stands and not try to force it to be about us. But I do think there will be some application on the tail end of this thing. So let's see what's here first, and then we'll dig in, okay? Let me catch you up. If you're newer with us, we are in our Second Samuel series right now. And Second Samuel, the first three chapters have covered this information. King Saul, the first king of Israel, is dead. Bro died at the end of 1 Samuel. He is dead. David the man after God's own heart, who would be the second king of Israel, has been crowned, but he has only been crowned over one of the 12 tribes of Israel. The other 11 tribes he has not yet become king over. And then there's a third guy named Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth is Saul's fourth youngest and only remaining son who has been crowned by a guy named Abner uh, as, as the king over the other 11 tribes. But Ishbosheth, I've told you, is kind of a, he's like a lame duck when it comes to being king. He's like a puppet regime because Abner is pulling the strings. Abner was Saul's main general. He was his right-hand man. And so last week at the very beginning of chapter three, Ishbosheth kind of ticks off, gets ticked off at Abner because Abner takes Saul, Ishbosheth's dad's, uh, one of his concubines and sleeps with her. And so that upsets Ishbosheth. He calls out Abner on that. And so Abner flip-flops allegiances, leaves the house of Saul, calls up King David and says, hey, I want to make a covenant with you, a treaty that you'll protect my life if I start helping you acquire the other 11 tribes so that you can become king over all 12 tribes of Israel. And that's where we pick ourselves up in 2 Samuel chapter 3, starting in verse 20. So look at your text with me, starting in verse 20. This is where we left off last week. When Abner, so remember Abner is Ishbosheth's uh, puppet master, okay? When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go And will gather all Israel to my Lord, the king, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. So the thing to note in those first verses is that Abner comes to David, but he only brings 20 guys with him. He doesn't bring the whole army. He brings 20 guys because he ain't scared anymore. He's not worried about showing up to David, his arch enemy, because there's a treaty in place. There's a covenant in place. And so the text explicitly says that Abner came, they ate, and then he went in peace. In peace is an important piece of those verses because uh, while while David does not like Abner, he likes what Abner's gonna get for him, which is kingship over the 12 tribes. But then David's right-hand man, another guy named Joab, shows up. Uh Uh-oh. Remember last week? Whenever Joab shows up, we go, "Uh uh-oh, okay? Joab shows up. Look at verse 23. When Joab and all the army that was with him, so that's a lot more guys than 20, when they came, it was told Joab, 
Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone, there's our words, in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, Why have you, what have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? So, so Joab is upset. He's upset with David because David is dealing with Abner, the enemy, and that he let him go, in those words, in peace. He set him free, in peace. He let him go. But, but, but then, then Joab says, you know, this is your enemy. Why did you do this? But he's kind of a little smoke and mirrors there because we know the real reason why Joab hates Abner. Do you remember this? What happened last week? Abner killed Joab's brother. You remember this? Okay, so last week, if you were here with us, uh, we, we heard that Joab, there was a civil war starting between Israel and Judah. And Joab and his two brothers are fighting in this civil war. And his youngest brother, a guy named Asahel, who apparently is like a fleet-footed sprinter, right? He's real quick, fast young man, athletic, the athletic type. Uh, and, and he had been chasing Abner. Abner told him, hey, stop chasing me. Stop chasing me. He kept chasing to the point where finally Abner thrusts his, remember that move? The thrusting of the spear back through Ishbo, or, uh, uh, Asahel's stomach, out his back. Hi, Kenley. Good to see you. Um, out his back. <laughs> I just realized you were there. <laughs> um, out his back. And now Joab's brother is dead. So Joab's brother is dead, and that's why Joab is upset with Abner. It's not so much that he's making a treaty with David. It's that there's a blood feud. You killed my brother. But remember what I said last week. He killed his brother in the heat of battle, in war. And that is a just killing. It is a just killing to kill in war in this context. And so there's this blood feud. What's Joab going to do now? Well, let's look at verse 26. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah, but David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the midst of the gate to speak with him privately and there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. So Joab goes behind David's back here. The text makes that clear that David had no idea this was happening, but Joab sends messengers to Abner who had left in peace, sends messengers probably like, hey, come on back. The king forgot to tell you something. So he wanders back. Maybe he's got his 20 guys. Maybe he doesn't, but he returns. Joab pulls him aside into the shadows and stabs him in the stomach. Abner is murdered by Joab. Now note, while Abner killed Asahel in a just war killing, Joab just murdered Abner in cold blood. And that is unjust. That's an unjust killing. What's going to happen? I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 28. Afterward, when David heard of it, David said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house and may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or one who is leprous or one who has a spindle or one or, or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. 
So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. So here's my paraphrase. David hears what happens and he goes, he goes, Joab, are you kidding me? You went behind my back like that? I know we don't like Abner, but he was prepared to hand over the 11 tribes of Israel to me. That's what God promised me. And now he, I was finally going to get what God promised me. And you go and kill him? What are people going to think? That I was double crossing Abner? And so this is what David does. Publicly, he washes his hands of it. He makes it clear to everyone, I had nothing to do with the death of Abner. In fact, he invokes a curse upon Joab. He's like, I mean, he kind of lays it out there. Like someone's going to have a discharge. There's going to be lepers. Like it goes, he goes wild. He's like curses on Joab for this death, but it ain't my thing. It's not my problem. But I want you to note, David doesn't do anything substantial about it. He slaps Joab on the wrist. Joab has just murdered a man in cold blood who was under a treaty of protection from King David. By the law of Moses, he should be executed. Joab should be executed. And David is the king. He is the man of justice in ancient Israel. And he forgoes justice because he doesn't want to kill his right-hand man, Joab. David gives him a pass. Just so you know, this is unjust. It was an unjust killing. And the king now is passing over the judgment with which he is supposed to rule as Israel's king. He is supposed to be a man of justice and he neglects it. And then the rest of chapter three, if you were to read it, I'm not gonna read the whole thing to you, but the rest of chapter three, uh, David sings a song. He prepares a very nice funeral memorial service for Abner and does this huge, big public display to essentially say, I didn't do it. He wanted everyone to know it's not the blood that's on his hands. But I want us to turn to, to chapter four because the story moves along. Chapter four, and we're gonna pick it up in verse one. This is after Abner's funeral, 4-1. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. So it's, it's almost as if Ishbosheth knew that he was no good at being king, because his right hand man gets killed, and it says that he is dismayed, and all of Israel is like, dang it. You've got to be kidding me. It's like they all knew Ishbosheth is not a good king. Now that Abner's gone, he can't pull the strings, and all we're left with is an empty suit. That's essentially what happens right there. But now, what happens in verses two and three is we meet two guys. I'm not going to read those verses because they're hard to pronounce, okay? But we, we meet two more guys who will come into play in one moment. And then in verse four, we are introduced just in one quick verse to Saul's last remaining heir, uh, his grandson. So Ishbosheth is his last son, and there is a grandson, one of Jonathan's sons, uh, a kid named Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, say that three times fast, okay? Mephibosheth. Um, but Mephibosheth was dropped as a child. It's, it's a sad little verse. Dropped as a child, is crippled in the legs. 
This is the Bible, okay? And he will come into play in a few chapters. Mephibosheth will show off. I think it's chapter nine, but we're gonna get there. There's just a weird little foreshadowing in verse four. But here's what I wanna do. I want you to look at verse five because these two guys who I will now try to pronounce their names, these two guys have to do something now that all of Israel is losing heart over the death of Abner. Look at verse five. Now the sons of Ramon, the Berothite, Rechab and Banah, they set out and about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Benach, his brother, escaped. When they had come into the house, as he lay on his bed, uh, in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. So Ishbosheth, the last son of King Saul, is dead. Stabbed in the stomach. Exact same way Abner went out, stabbed in the stomach. But this time he's stabbed in the stomach by his own men while he's asleep in the heat of the day and they cut his head off too. Okay, so there is no king in Israel at this moment. There is no king. And now that Abner is dead, uh, the men are just like, we have lost heart. Let's kill him. Uh, They cut their losses, like literally. That's a Bible violence dad joke. (laughs) Thank you. Okay, look at the rest of verse seven. They took his head, Ishbosheth's head, and went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to King David, here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. So they, they bring Ishbosheth's head to David. They travel all night. I mean, that's a weird, do they carry it in a sack? Backpack? I don't know, a rope. I don't know what they, they carried the head all night. They bring it to David. You have to ask questions of the text like this, you guys. It just makes it better, okay? <laughs> they bring it to David. They say, here's the, essentially they say, they say, here's the head of your enemy. Here's the guy who is standing in, way, in the way of you becoming the king over everything. Now you can become king. And did you know that they called him my Lord? said, here's, here's, here's the head of Ishbosheth, my Lord. They call him my Lord. It's kind of like, hey, was I your Lord before you beheaded him? Because why were you on his team then? Why weren't you on my team now? You can see they're trying to butter him up and they're expecting, finally, I am going to win now. Um, but it doesn't play out that way. Look at verse nine. But David answered Rechab and Benah, his brother, the sons of Rimon, the Berethite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead. Remember chapter one? And thought he was bringing good news. I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave to him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. This is the word of the Lord. 
you know, my daughter has a lot of children's Bibles. And like, you know, storybooks with Bible stories and we've seen like videos and things like that with Bible tales and, you know, all kinds of stuff explaining this. Uh, and I have never seen those chapters. In any of those things, not in one of them. There are, like, there's no vegetables retelling this story uh, for you to enjoy. You just won't find it. Did you just read that? that that's gruesome. I mean, that, this is more like a horror movie. Cutting off hands, cutting off feet, hanging up bodies. Guys, this is King David we're talking about. A man after God's own heart. That's our text for today. I hope you're still with me here. I hope you're hanging with me on this because that's our text. Uh, this is actually a very simple story. It's very a simple story. Here's the story. This is the story of how David goes from being king over one tribe to being king over 12 tribes. That's what we just covered. Next week, he will be coronated king over all 12 tribes of Israel, but it's history. We've just read history. For a real people in a real time, in a real place, this is their real history. This is what happened. This is what happened. Abner was murdered by Joab. David neglects justice. Okay, then Ishbosheth is murdered by his own man. Uh, David executes justice, but, but just like he did in, in Ziklag in chapter one, right? But then he, he cuts their hands and feet off, which seems excessive to me. I don't know if he's making up for not exercising justice with Joab. I don't know what the game is with the hands and the feet. I read a bunch this week and could not find an answer, but he mutilates the bodies. Thus saith the Lord. Um, so how do we apply this? If this book is about me, if this book is about us, how do I apply that to 2024 Littleton Chris Martin? Like, what do I do with this? What do we do with this? Well, I told you I would give you some application. Um, but what I would like to do with the remainder of our time is I would like to zoom out from this story specifically and try to address something that seems to be looming all through these chapters, all through the books of First and Second Samuel, and frankly, all through really the whole Bible, specifically the Old Testament. Um, and that's this question. I want to address this question. How could God bless such violent people? I want to talk about biblical violence this morning. How could God bless this? Like, this is crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. How in the world could a good, loving God bless that? Remember last week when we, when we talked about um, how some people point to like polygamy in the Old Testament as a reason why we can't trust the Bible? And we talked about that. Um, if I were to level that up, violence in the Old Testament is a huge barrier for people as to whether or not they could trust the God of the Bible. It's a huge barrier when it comes to people trusting God's word. Uh, why does it seem like God in the Old Testament has a disregard for human life? We're collecting diapers and wipes because we are proponents of the sanctity of human life. Why does God seem to be different in the Old Testament? Why does he seem like he's blessing these actions that we would consider absolutely abhorrent? 
Just in case you're wondering, if we like are hiring here at Fathom Church and you write in your application that you've hacked somebody's hands and feet off, we will not allow you to work with children. We don't hire that. It's, it's a, that is a, you, you have disqualified yourself from employment at Fathom Church. But this is King David, a man after God's own heart. How could God bless such violence? Well, I have two points that I think will help when we start to come to that question regarding our Old Testament. Two points, not three, so you're welcome. Two points today. Um, And so let me address this. First, I want to start addressing that question of violence by, by talking about blind spots. I think the first place we have to talk is we have to talk about blind spots. Okay, uh, God, you can, you can take this one to the bank. God has always used people who have blind spots. He always has, and he always will. He always uses people with blind spots. Read the book. Read this thing. Every single character had major blind spots. You've read this thing? Okay, Adam and Eve. You want to start at the beginning? Adam and Eve, they screwed the whole thing up for us. A thing for reptiles and fruit, and it just blew up. You don't like that one? Okay, Abraham. Father Abraham, who had many sons. Okay, that guy was a perpetual liar through his whole life. On repeat, doing the same thing multiple times, lying. Moses, okay, the bringer of God's law, the guy who saved God's people in the exodus from Egypt, Moses had a huge anger problem. First thing he does is kill a guy, bury him in the sand, runs away for 40 years, comes back, leads the people out, gets ticked at a rock, hits it twice, water comes out, he can't even go into the promised land. An anger problem his whole life. Moses, David obviously had issues with women, We talked about that last week. We're going to talk about that on repeat. But he has anger issues, cutting off hands and feet. I mean, we just talked about that. And on and on I could go. Somebody said earlier, well, what about Daniel? Okay, Daniel is the only, (laughs) just you Bible geeks, okay? Daniel's the only character in the Bible that we don't have a written down flaw, just so you know. Uh, But Daniel, most scholars think uh, the the book of Daniel was actually written by, want to guess? Daniel. Okay, so... So, so let's talk blind spots. Let's talk blind spots. Here's something I want us to apply to our worldview today from this. Uh, we shouldn't be shocked when the same sort of things happen today. When, when men or women of God are found out to have blind spots. We shouldn't be shocked by this, but we are. I am, we are, we, we, we are. But I heard another preacher say this, and I love this saying. He said, even the best of men are men at best. Remember last week I quoted Martin Luther and I said, God doesn't, uh, God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. That's a great quote. This is a great quote. Even, even the best of men are men at best. The very best are still human. They're still frail. They're still sinful. 
See, see, we are rarely incensed when we read about these biblical characters because we're like, we, we excuse it somehow because we're like, well, at least he's David. It's, he's just David. Like, yeah, maybe he made a mistake, but he's David. But when a modern leader today falls or messes up or does something that just lets us down, we often respond with shock. Like, how could this happen? How could a man or a woman of God do such a thing? And I'll tell you, the answer is blind spots. Every single man or woman, even the best of God's people are people at best. Now hear me, it doesn't excuse sin. Please don't take that as an excuse for sin, but it certainly explains some things. And I think it's a good and biblical thing to like follow godly leaders that God puts over his people. I think that's good. I think that's biblical. But anytime we put an unhealthy focus on a leader that God chooses to use, like when we put all of our hope and all of our trust and all of our focus on a leader, listen, you're setting yourself up to be let down. You're setting yourself up to be let down. Gosh, because the closer you get to a leader, the more you realize they're just like you. Hopefully there's some things that you can emulate in their life, but you will soon realize next to any human being that they're messed up, that they're flawed, that they're weak, and that they struggle. Every single, the very best are just people. They're humans. It's blind spots. And just real quick, by the way, uh, we all have them. Like we all have blind spots. We studied Ephesians last fall. This is why Ephesians chapter, or not last fall, two falls ago, Ephesians chapter four uh, teaches us that we should walk patiently with one another. We should walk patiently with one another. Uh, You know why I'm gonna be patient with you? It's because I need you to be patient with me. This is one of the one another's that Christians are commanded in the New Testament, to walk patiently with one another. You're gonna need to be patient with me. As your pastor, you're gonna need patience with me because listen, I'm going to let you down. I already have and I will continue to. If you're like, you haven't let me down, pastor, it's just because you haven't been here long enough yet. (laughs) Just give me some time. Or it's just because you're not close enough to me yet. Like you haven't, we haven't quite got that relationship placed yet where you're like, wait a second, this dude is not legit because I'm not, neither are you. You're gonna let me down. I'm gonna let you down. That's why we're called to be patient because we all have blind spots. Areas where we cannot see potential pitfalls or potential unwise moves in our lives. And that's why we need community. That's why we're called to do this together. Watching one another, being patient with one another because I can't see my blind spots. You know why? Because I'm blind to it. It's profound. You could write that down. Blindness. Okay, we don't even go there. You're just thinking to yourself, some of you, I don't think I have any blind spots. I don't think I have any because I took the Enneagram uh, and I'm in, I'm in counseling, okay? And I, I practiced mindfulness and I practiced breathing and I practiced stretching and like, like I'm pretty self-aware so I don't have those things. I don't think I have any blind spots. And listen, good for you. And you're stretching. Okay, good for you in that. Uh, I'm glad of that. 
but the only people who don't think that they have blind spots are the ones with the biggest ones. The most self-aware of us recognize that there's things we can't see about ourselves. The fact that you don't think you have them only proves that you do. So stretch and breathe, but come on. We all have blind spots. I wanna add to that. Let me level that one up too, okay? We all have blind spots plus every time and age and society has blind spots. Every time, age, and society has blind spots too. It's where I'll make my second point about biblical violence. See, we, we come to the Old Testament text and very often we read it through a magnifying glass instead of reading it as a mirror. You're supposed to read the Bible as a mirror not with a magnifying glass. Let me explain what I mean by that, okay? Um, We often read the Bible through a magnifying glass, which is a very common temptation and actually quite a popular thing to do in our day and age. It's very popular, like in our culture. We are culturally obsessed with what's known, you've heard this, what's known as cancel culture. Canceling things, okay? And it is very in vogue right now to judge the past Okay, through the lens of the present. And I'm just going to propose that that is unfair. That's unfair. When we judge those in the past through the lens of the present, whether it's 2,000 years ago or 200 years ago or gosh, 20 years ago, what we are arrogantly assuming in that judgment is that if we had been living back then, we certainly would never have participated in that junk. and I'm just not confident enough in my own heart to think that I wouldn't. This is what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery. Looking back 2,000 or 200 or 20 years through a magnifying glass and making judgments. Chronological snobbery. But, But Jesus tackles this, I think. So in his famous Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew chapter seven, Jesus says these words, I'll put them up on the screen. Matthew seven, one says, judge not that you be not judged. Now you wanna take a, find a text that's more abused than this text, good luck to you, okay? People rip this one out of context and use it for their own purposes all the time. Let me tell you what that doesn't mean, okay? That doesn't mean that we don't make determinations on whether something is right or wrong. That's not what he means by judgment there. Okay, uh, here's, here, I will say this, put this on the podcast. You can write it down. Violence like this is wrong. We're allowed to judge that. We're allowed to determine that is wrong. That violence is wrong. But when Jesus talks about judgment here, he's not talking about us judging whether something is right or wrong. What he's talking about is making a condemnation towards the person or people who have done those wrong things. That's what he means by judgment. We can determine if something is wrong, but we are not the ones who are in charge of condemning the person who does the wrong thing. Let me explain the difference, okay? Uh, Condemnation, that word, we use that most frequently in our context when we talk about a building that has been condemned. And when a building is condemned, that means that that building is no longer, quote, fit for use. That's what being condemned is. 
Condemnation is, I see that thing, it is no longer fit for use under what it's supposed to be doing. So we condemn a building and you're not allowed to live there anymore. I don't do business out of there anymore. Not supposed to go in there anymore. It has been condemned. It is unfit for use. And that is not for us to judge in other people. We can say, you shouldn't have done that. We should never say you are unfit for use because you did that. There's a big difference there. Here's why Jesus goes on. Chapter seven, verse two. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? See, when we look at historical figures or historical peoples or even modern day figures, and we find ourselves wanting to condemn to declare them unfit for use because of their actions. What we don't realize is Jesus is saying, if you want to measure people that way, that's how I'm going to measure you. If you want, to, if you want that, that to be the balance, the scale, the weight that we're going to use, that's what you're going to have to live up to. You see, we tend to judge others by their absolute worst moments, and we would prefer to be judged by our absolute best moments. But Jesus just said, that's not how it works. That's not how this thing works. That's looking through a magnifying glass, throwing condemnations. And Jesus says, if you do that, you're going to be measured by that. And listen, y'all, you don't want that. I promise you, you don't want fair. I want unfair. I think you do too. Every single culture, listen, every single culture, our culture today, every single culture has blind spots and every single culture will be looked at by future cultures through their magnifying glass and be judged. It's gonna happen. So when we look at the Bible, when we read these Old Testament stories and there's hands and feet and heads and bodies all over the place, when we look at the Bible and we say, how could God bless this? How could God bless this? How could God bless this? The real question that we should ask isn't through our, our magnifying glass. It should be our mirror and we should see this and we should say, how could he bless me? I'm prone to wander. I'm unfaithful to God. I make a million bad decisions. How could he bless a person like me? And we let this reflect onto us as opposed to just casting judgment through our lens. It's how you read the Bible, y'all, that matters. The Bible tells us who God is and what he's like. And then the Bible begins to illuminate for us our own sinfulness. Sometimes pastors will say, the Bible, we read the Bible and then the Bible reads us. That's what's happening here. So think of it, I've taught like this before. Think of the Bible um, as a diagnostic tool. Okay, so uh, I, two weeks ago, I had an MRI on my uh, right ankle. So uh, I am a runner. Actually, I, let me take that back. You're a runner, I run, right? Yeah, I know. Uh, I'm, I, I run, okay? I, I like to run, I dabble in running. I am not a runner. I don't have any shorts with slits up to my hip. That, that's how you know I'm not a runner, okay? But I am a, I like to run, okay? 
But for the last couple of months in my running, okay, I've been having some pain in my ankle. Like just, I mean, like hobbling pain. I thought it might be an Achilles. I was getting nervous. And so what I did is I ignored it. Um, <laughs> just hoping it would go away. Uh, and when I woke up at two in the morning to go uh, to the bathroom and I could not walk myself there, my wife said, you should probably go call the doctor and stop being an idiot. <laughs> And at two in the morning, I agreed with her. So I went to, uh, I went to the doctor a couple weeks ago. They first did an x-ray of my ankle, didn't see anything broken. They said, hey, we need to probably level this up, get an MRI, get better imaging and scan that ankle. And so I spent two hours with my legs in a tube, immobilized while they, I don't know, magnetized my, aisle, my ankle? I don't know, what did they do? They took pictures of it, okay? Uh, come to find out, I just have a bunch of arthritis in my ankles from like, you know, turning them and rolling them and running them and stuff like that, uh, which apparently means I'm just getting old. That's what the scan told me. I'm just getting old. Uh, I was hoping it was a torn Achilles. It's not. I'm just old. Um, you lost yet? Okay, let's bring this back to the Bible. The x-ray, the MRI, uh, it's, it's like the scriptures. That's what the scriptures are supposed to do. The, the, the scan showed that my ankle had a problem. It revealed to me what was wrong inside my ankle. The scan shows us what's wrong with us. It mirrors to us that we are messed up. It mirrors to us the areas that are broken, that are busted, that are twisted, that are torn within us. That's how, the, that's how we should look at these texts, not zooming in with our magnifying glass, but, but, but actually letting it reflect back to us what God wants to show us. Now, now, we should be looking for those kinds of reflections. As we read these, even these Old Testament texts, we should be looking where we might be sick Right, where we might be sinning, where we might even be blind to some things. God might reveal some of your blind spots through his word. What a good and right thing. Be careful not to judge the scriptures through that lens because I've got blind spots too. You've got blind spots too. I have uh, things in my life that someday people could look back on and say, what was he thinking? What a dummy. Maybe I should focus on the log. Maybe instead I should focus on my scan results. Maybe instead of asking God, how could you bless this? I should ask God, how would you ever bless a person like me? And that'll stir up in you a different set of gratitude than you've ever thought possible. So listen, y'all, all this stuff, like um, this David story, the hands, the feet, the bodies, the heads, all that stuff. It's, it's not, I'm not trying to say that what David is doing is okay. That's not my point this morning. It's not like, oh, well, it's in the Bible, so it must be okay. We already covered that last week, but that's just dumb. That's not a good way to read the Bible. It's, it's not okay. Please write this down. Don't cut off people's hands. Kenley? Okay, thank you. Thank you. No, 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 that's not the point. That's not the point. I'm in no way condoning violence, nor is the Bible condoning violence like this. Just like last week, I wasn't condoning amassing multiple wives and polygamy for yourself. That's not what was the point last week. And, that's, and, and in fact, just in case you were worried, just like there are terrible consequences for polygamy in the Bible, there will also be terrible consequences for the violence and lack of justice of David in this chapter. It, as we read through 2 Samuel, it's actually his multiple wives 
and Joab's negative influence on his life that will lead to some of the worst atrocities in David's life. You're gonna see this. Letting Joab off the hook is the worst thing he could have possibly done. We'll see it. We'll see it. Now, um, on a sermon like this, when we're talking about a topic like this from a text like this, it could be an, a, an interesting thought exercise uh, where you just kind of say at the end, okay, I, I, think I, I think I can handle some of these weird passages a little bit better in my Old Testament. And I think that's a good and right application from this, but I think we would miss if we just stopped right there. Because knowing that we all have blind spots should lead us to ask some questions of application individually as well. Hey, you've got blind spots. Some of them you've got an inkling that they're there, but you're afraid to look. You don't want to check. So what if it, what if, what, what? You don't even want to look. Hey, what's your next step in this? What do you think the spirit would have you do concerning these things? You ignoring some stuff back here that you can't see? You know it's there. Whispers to you every once in a while. Catch it in your mirror every once in a while, but you're like, ah. what, what's your next step with that? And listen, for some of you, you started working on your blind spots the last two weeks. Like the last two weeks as we've been preaching these things, you started working on your blind spots last week or the week before because actually the application from this text is the same as the last two weeks. Two weeks ago, the application was this, burn those ships. Burn the means of escape back to the territory of the enemy out of your life completely. Give yourself no way back to the old life that you used to live. Burn those things. And some of you have already started that. Last week, we talked about little seed besetting sins that, that we think are so cute and so cuddly and so, uh, so, so unintrusive in our lives. But we just kind of keep them hidden away, not worried about them because they're not a big deal. And I told you last week, are you allowing for those things to hide there? Because those are the things that'll catch up with you in two, three, four months, two, three, four years and bite your face off. They're the things that'll wreck you. Besetting sins are the things that grow up into life-altering, crushing sins. So some of you have been starting that work already, so the application is keep doing that, okay? Keep doing that stuff, yo. Um, but my hunch is that some of you have punted on those things. Two weeks, you thought about burning a ship and you didn't. You thought about confessing some of that seedling sin, but you didn't. You got busy, you got distracted. You just decided not to. But today, listen, your scan is revealing that same thing. The scan is revealing the same thing. There's something wrong. You've got a blind spot. You've got hidden sin. You've got something you've got to burn. And the scan is showing you the same, the very same thing. And now here's the craziest part. Some of you right now are like, well, you know what my solution is? I'm just going to keep coming back to church. And listen, you should come back to church, okay? Like, I think that's a good thing. But coming here and sitting here and listening to, the God, to God's word preached over you every single week and then leaving and doing nothing about it is like, is like, uh, as insane as me saying, oh, I went for a run, my, my ankle's hurting again, I need another scan. I need two hours in the MRI tube to fix this thing. 
The scan didn't do anything. The scans can't heal you. I need orthotics. I need old man things. Like, that's what I need. I don't need another scan. I need to be healed. I need to be fixed. And I'm telling you, sermons alone, the Bible alone cannot heal you. But listen, Jesus can. Jesus can. And that's the message here. So if there's something that you need to do today to confess or to repent of or to set fire to and burn to the ground, gosh, do it. James, brother of Jesus, says this. Uh, let's not just be hearers of the word. Let's be doers of the word. Do it. Stop it with these redundant scans. Next week, another scan, I'm telling you. You don't need another one. You need to change now. God, help us. Let's pray. Lord, we bless you today. A weird text. Another strange one, Father. And yet, as we commit ourselves to, to study the whole counsel of your word, God, I'm finding even in a, just a random, I'm gonna fly by this text and never think about it again kind of text. Lord, you're revealing how you actually work in my life. You're showing me there's things in my peripheral that I'm unaware of or barely aware of or even just kind of letting exist there thinking that ignorance is bliss, but that thing will ultimately haunt me. So Holy Spirit, you're the preacher here. You're the real preacher at Fathom. I pray you preach to us. Preach to our hearts. Convict us of sin. If we've punted on burning the ships, if we've punted on killing sin, then I pray today, Lord, you would give us the courage to take, to take a hold of these things, to change, not to cast judgment, but to allow for your word to work on our hearts and change us in a real practical way. So Jesus, I'm thankful for this text. As weird as it is, as, as gory and detail um, heavy as it is, I'm thankful. Holy Spirit, do your work in us in my heart, in every man and every woman's heart here. Do your good and perfect work in our midst. Lord, we pray these things in the name of Jesus, by the power of that spirit and all God's people said.